Everybody doing this morning? Everybody with me? How many of you guys brought your Bibles or your phone where your Bible resides? <laughs> okay, good. So we'll be turning in just a minute to a particular passage of Scripture. Uh, but before I jump in, I just want to remind you guys that Easter is coming, um, or what we like to call uh, CEO. Uh, that's when people come for Christmas and Easter only. That's what CEO means. <laughs> and thankfully, our culture, at least we still have that, you know, in, in terms of reaching out to people. So people like, if you ask them to, to come be a part of church, uh, most of the time they'll actually say yes if you've been building relationship with people who don't know Christ. But also, uh, especially on Easter and especially on Christmas, uh, when we have meetings like that, there's just something about that culturally that people most of the time will attend. So think about not just, um, you know, I'm just going to randomly pick somebody, but think about someone that you have been investing in or need to invest in to their life and build relationship with them. Because not because you want another notch on your gospel pistol, it's not what we do it. But what we do is we, we recognize what Jesus has done in us, how he's saved us, how he's rescued us, how he's transformed our lives and taken, as Psalm says, taken me out of the miry pit and place my feet on a solid rock, right? And so we think about what God has done in us, and if your heart reaches out and recognizes what he's done in you, man, you just can't wait to share that good news with other people. So I just want to encourage you, as Easter is getting closer, as we follow Jesus, part of what I'm preaching into uh, in this series in following Jesus is not just that we are disciples of Christ, but also that we are to make disciples, and we're going to get more and more into that. So I'm going to preach a series, um, this, uh, or the next part of a series this morning, um, called Follow. And so uh, really what that's all about is um, just learning again, like I said, to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, um, but also learning what it means to make disciples. And so last week I mentioned the word Christian appears three times in the entire New Testament. That's most, most of the time that's a shock to people if they've never known that. But the word disciple appears over 300 times in the New Testament. So think about that for a second, that God thinks that being a disciple is so important that he mentioned it 297 times more than he mentioned the word Christian. So he's really serious. Jesus is really serious. As a matter of fact, we're going to get into this later. But the last thing he said before he went back up into heaven was he said, I want you to, you to go and make disciples. That's what your job is, your mission, the royal mission. Karen was talking about our kids are being drawn into is also our mission. And the royal mission is to go and make disciples, to bring heaven to earth, to declare who God is into people's lives, to be a witness, not just to witness with words, but to be an example, to be different. Not just in your words, but also in, and it, which means oftentimes in your character, but also in your competence. Can we do the things that Jesus did? And that's a calling that God has on our life. We're going to get more into that as this, uh, as this series goes on. Last week I mentioned um, the question, are you a fan or are you a follower? And so if you're interested in answering that question, if you'd like to know more about that, just go, it's online at dothancf.com. You can go back and listen to it and study into that a little bit. But this morning I want to ask the question, as a follower, do you know Jesus? Do you know the Father? Do you know God? Or do you just know about Him? And so I want to start this morning by having a friend of mine, just a second, come up and, and read you a parable. And I'm not going to put it on the screen on purpose, because I want you, what I want you to do is I want you to hear the story. I want you to hear the story, because this is what happened when Jesus shared parables, he would tell a story, and people were drawn into the story. So I want you to listen. I know you're used to watching things on a video in modern times. I get it. But I want you to hear the story the way Jesus told the story. And so my definition of a parable is a story with a point behind it and someone in need of wisdom in front of it. So that's going to be you guys in just a second. So I'm going to invite my friend Diana to come up 
and read this passage in Luke chapter 15. Eleven through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. <clears throat> Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Let's give her a hand. Thanks, Diana. I wanted you guys to hear that in her Australian accent. Who are we kidding? She's been here so long, she sounds like she's born in Montgomery. <laughs> Although technically, Australia is south of the Mason-Dixon line. I'm just saying. So she may be more southern than we are, right? So let me start with, with this. There's a context that's really helpful to understand. So Jesus, he starts this parable, but there's a few things that happen before that, and you need to understand that in the context of it. So if you look back at chapter, or uh, verse uh, 1 in chapter 15, this is what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners. I always love that Jesus 
does, he always gives a special place to tax collectors because he says tax collectors and sinners as if they're like one is worse than the other. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that's just me. <laughs> then he goes on. He says, there were tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So there's two groups of people he's talking to. He's talking to sinners, right, tax collectors and sinners. Um, tax collectors, I make that joke, but it wasn't a joke in that time. They were the worst of sinners, and Jesus separates them because of that, because not only were, there, were they sinners, but they were traitors to the nation of Israel. So they're really Really, really despicable people. And everybody knew that, right? And so, like, the sinners would be in the front and the tax collector, collectors would have to be in the back. Does that make sense? They were just that bad. And then the next part of this is he says they're Pharisees and teachers of the law. And this is what they were doing. They were complaining and they muttered. I love that word. I think it's very specific. They muttered under their breath, just bitter and angry, you know, like they've been baptized in vinegar. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys know some people like that. Or maybe that's you. I don't know. But this is what he said. It says, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Now think about that for a second, that that was so different than anything everybody had known, and the tax collectors and sinners were were drawing near to hear Jesus. That took a lot of courage for them to do that, but it took even more courage for Jesus to welcome them in, and the tax collectors, sorry, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law noticed that. So he tells three parables right after this. So he tells two more parables before he gets to the parable of the lost son. He tells the parable of the lost sheep. He tells the parable of the lost coin. And then he tells this parable of the lost son. But it's actually sons, plural. And you're going to see that as we kind of get into this. So it jumps in, verse 12. It says, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. The estate. And so what you find is that the younger brother did not care about his father one iota. All he cared about was what his father could give him. He just wanted his father's things. He did not want his father. Verse 13, he promptly takes his, his inheritance, the inheritance belongs to him, and he squanders it. He wastes it on wild living, the Bible said. And then verse 14, it says, he began to be in need. Go figure. The guy didn't have a budget, so guess what's going to happen, right? You don't have a budget, you're going to find yourself at the end of the week with not enough money. So he hires himself out to a citizen of that country to feed his pigs. And this was especially humiliating because he was a Jewish man and pigs were unclean according to the Jewish religion and culture. Then the Bible says something very, very fascinating. I don't want you to miss this. It says in verse 17, when he came to his senses... It's almost as if he had lost his ever-loving mind, right? And when you understand and when you see the story of who this father was, you look at this son with equal measures of anger, frustration, and pity because he totally missed who his father was. In all the time he had spent with his, his father, growing up in his father's household, he never realized and never knew who his father was. And it's important, it's important to recognize that. Verse 19 says, I am no longer worthy. He's coming home. So he's finally made, he's come to his senses. He's coming home. It says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, this is really, really interesting because when he said that, he, it was really true, according, especially according to the culture of that day. He had lost his inheritance. He had wasted his inheritance. And now he was coming home begging. But here's the thing. He didn't ask to come home as a slave. Because the father, you'll see in the story, there were slaves there too. Does it mean that the Bible is okay with slavery? Some, some people read this and go, oh, obviously God, you know, was, he was for slavery. Well, that's just dumb because he mentions the devil too in the Bible. I'm pretty sure God's not for the devil, you think? So here's the thing. 
<laughs> he comes home and he, he's, he's so broken or seemingly broken that he says, I will become like one of my father's hired servants. Now, a couple things about that. One is the mentality wasn't, I'm going to come home as a son. He felt like he had lost that privilege and rightfully so because of what he'd done. He says, I'm, I'm not worthy. And that was true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But here's what I want you to notice about this. He said, I'm going to become like one of my hired servants. There's a sense in this revelation about the hired servants. And because he said, I'm going to come home as a servant, not as a slave. That somewhere in the back of his mind, he was going to repay his father for the inheritance that he lost. Now think about that for a second. Thinking through the size of this man's inheritance, because the story, whole, whole idea behind this story is the father has a massive inheritance, and his inheritance is his property, it's everything that he owns, his, his cattle, his sheep, all those things. That's the estate. That's, who, that's what the father presides over, for lack of a better term, right? And so he's coming home, and he says, I want to be a hired servant, because somewhere in the back of his mind, back of his heart, he's like, I'm going to pay him back. So his mentality was, I can't come as a son. I no longer believe that I can do that. The best I can hope for is a servant. But even in that bowing his head as a servant, his mindset was still in the place of, you know what? I'll repay him. I will pay him back for the wrong that I've done him. Really, you think you're going to pay back that kind of fortune that you squandered in your loss? Verse 20 says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran. That's powerful. Because first century fathers, first century landowners, first century patriarchs do not run. It's not necessary. They quit running a long, long time ago because they don't have to, right? And the Bible says when he saw his son, his heart was filled with compassion. And he ran to him, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. That's powerful. And what a beautiful story. Like, Can you imagine you're listening to this story and as you're listening to this story, if you are a tax collector or a sinner in that context, you know he's talking about you. And you're hearing something different than you expect. Normally the rabbis would bring judgment upon the tax collectors and the sinners because they deserved it, right? That's kind of how the culture looked at it. And Jesus was doing something totally opposite and distinct and different. He was offering them mercy and kindness and the goodness of a father that they had not known. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Verse 21 says, Then the son said to him, I want you to listen to that. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said. And here's what I want you to notice about that. It really doesn't matter what you think. I love it when people talk to me about religion. I'm like, I don't care what you think about God. I don't care what I think about God. It's just an opinion. Your opinion may be helpful. It may not be. It may be informed. More than likely, it's not. More than likely, you got your information about Jesus and God from Facebook. It's a really poor place to build your theology. I'm just saying, right? So here's the thing. The, he said, the son said, this is what I think of you. This is how I think I need to come to you. I've decided this in my own heart, in my own head, based on whatever it is that I know. But the father said. So, what you think doesn't matter. It's what the Father has revealed about himself that matters. And we're going to see that as we go through this story. He didn't know his Father. This is a picture of the Son. All of us, in some form or fashion, have come up with some version of who we think God is. 
All, there are so many religions out there. We all recognize this. I've shared this many times from this pulpit, that Christianity is the only religion with a Savior. And that matters, and we're going to get to that in just a second. It's important to understand that this is different. So there are lots of religions. We've come up with lots of ways that we think we need to come before God. How he is, what his character and his nature is like, how he judges, how he forgives, all those things. We created that in our own mind. And often we've come up with it because of the way we see our own fathers. And maybe our fathers were good men, but they never lived up to the promise that we had. And, you know, I remember seeing my dad as Superman and then somewhere in my teens realizing that he was just a man. And it really, it really frightened me because I had such an expectation because some of that was I, I'm growing up to become this. And then I see some of the limitations in my dad because he wasn't perfect. He was a good man, but he wasn't perfect. Sometimes our fathers are distant. Sometimes they have abandoned us and we don't even know who they were. And it leaves us in a place with, this is what the father's like. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't want me. He, he has left me for something else. Other things are more important to, to him than I am. And so you see this in this picture of this young son. Maybe his father, and in this picture, it wasn't true of his father, but maybe your father was abusive. Maybe your father, in, in the place where you're, you're vulnerable, in the place when you should have been protected and cared for and lifted up and encouraged, and, and in turn, what you had was abuse, and you were spoken against, and you were told you'll never amount to anything. And so rather than encouragement, you got discouragement your whole life. You were told this is who you are. Your father speaks into your identity, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And it's why it's so important to father your children with reaching into their heart and into their lives and saying, who does God say they are? Because you have no business, even as a father, with your, all, all the authority that God has given you, or a pastor, or a coach, or anybody in authority, you have no business saying to someone about their identity anything other than who Jesus has said they are. And fathers have done that most of the time because their fathers did that to them. And it becomes this massive cycle of brokenness. And at some point, we have to break the cycle of, 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 of brokenness. And we have to look and say, that may be what happened to me, but who is God to me really? Not what I think he is, but who has he revealed himself to be? And this is what Jesus is doing with this parable, this story. They had thought that God was a certain way. They had thought that Jesus was a certain way. And he's telling them a story and said, you are altogether wrong. I am, as another part of Scripture says, I am altogether not like you. You can become like me, right? But don't think that I have become like you in your brokenness. I haven't. Now listen, this is interesting because he did become like us in meekness, in weakness. He laid down heaven. He left, he left the perfection of heaven and the great love of the Father, and he came to the earth, still having the love of the Father, but laid down his power, for lack of a better term, in his own strength. He laid down his glory, and he came as a man into this world. We know that. We hear the story at Christmas. He's a, he's a baby Jesus, and he seems to be helpless in this scenario, and he grows up, and something in this process, and something in this picture, we begin to see something dif different. So maybe you had a father that didn't, didn't represent your heavenly father in the way that he should. So the younger son's mentality was like this. I'll go back and I'll earn my way into my father's good graces. I'll be his hired servant and I'll pay him back. He was still, in a sense, trying to control his life. His life had spiraled out of control. He realized it had a moment of lucidity, right? And then all of a sudden he gets back to his father and he lost it. 
Because now he's like, in some form or fashion, he's like, I'm going to actually control this relationship with my father by paying him back. I don't want to be beholden to him. It's a picture that you find in this sign. Verse 23 says, the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And this is significant because meat was a delicacy in that time. Most people did not, even wealthy people, did not eat meat in their meals. That was for only for special occasions. And, he, and the Bible says he threw a feast in his son's honor to celebrate. It was such a huge feast that more than likely everybody in the village had come. And this is important because it was an incredible expense to kill the fattened calf. especially, And it was more than enough meat for the family. So they invited others to the feast to celebrate. Meat was a delicacy. It was expensive. And this was going to be a feast to be remembered. Verse 24 says, for this son of mine, listen to what the father said, even seeing his son's brokenness, everything the son has done to dishonor him in every way, the whole culture looking at this, first of all, realizing that the father ran to the son, that never happened, never happened. What should have happened is the father would sit on the porch and when his son came up, he would wait for him to come, just sulking the entire time, in dishonor, in disgrace, coming back. And when he got there, something along the lines of what do you have to say for yourself would have been the proper thing to say and do in that culture. And it was exactly opposite of what Jesus was doing. He said, for this son of mine, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. Notice what he didn't say, and it's powerful. He did not say he was bad, and now he's good. He didn't say that. Very important to remember, especially when we get to the older brother. So remember the setting. These tax collectors and sinners were being welcomed by Jesus, and they knew in this story that they were the younger brother. There was no doubt in their mind. And all of a sudden, they're hearing of a father who is welcoming them. He's not... He's not waiting for them to be perfect. He's not waiting for them to apologize. Even though the son had prepared an incredible speech to bring to his father, his father didn't care. His father saw he, he had come home. I'm going to pour out all of my grace and my goodness and everything that I have into his life again. I've longed to do that, and I would have done that before if he'd allowed it. So here's what Psalm 51 says of this picture. They were elated. These guys were elated because they remembered all of them in the story, would have remembered this psalm says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. This is King David saying about the law and the sacrifices, all the, what the whole of the culture of, of, of uh, Israel was built on. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. God could care less about your speech. I remember my prayer when I gave my life to Jesus. I thought it was so eloquent. It was the stupidest prayer you've ever heard in your life. It was so theologically inaccurate, but it was with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And I said, Lord, I've tried everything else. I'd been in the martial arts. I've been into Eastern mysticism. I, I knew every kind of ism there was. I'd studied them in depth. I had seen supernatural things outside of God in the kingdom of darkness, not knowing it was the kingdom of darkness at the time. I was caught up, swept up into all this kind of stuff, thought more about myself than I thought anything else. And I remember when I finally understood who God was, I came in so many ways the same way this, other, this son came. I came, yeah, with a broken and a contrite heart, but I came not understanding who he really was. But I was beginning 
to follow him, and I was beginning to understand who he was. I said, Lord, I've tried everything else, and I had, I think, everything except drugs and alcohol, because it doesn't take a brain surgeon to know that ain't going to work. Just go to a party, right, and watch what happens after. (laughs) So I figured that out quick. But I tried everything else, every kind of religion. I tried in my own, you know, self-righteousness to try to, and I just couldn't do it. And I remember I tried everything else, and I just said this. Think about how stupid this prayer is. I may as well give you a shot. (laughs) I'm ashamed of my prayer, actually. But, again, it was with a broken and a contrite heart. So here's the kicker as we get into the rest of the story. The reason Jesus was telling the parable in the first place really had nothing to do with the first son. But most of us, when we hear of the son or the parable of, uh, of the lost son, we think one son and we think about this son, this first son. That he went off and, and lived like a heathen, did all the wrong things. He was bad, right? Not good like me, right? And so, you know, we see that and go, oh, look at God's great mercy for him. Oh, it's so sweet. That's nice. But Jesus was getting to a point on purpose. And so now this, this story all of a sudden shifts from the tax collectors and the sinners to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And now they become the point of the picture. Verse 25, meanwhile, back at the ranch, no, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, right? Meanwhile, the whole time this was happening, listen, listen to where he was. His son, the other son, the elder son was in the field. What does that mean? He was working hard for his father. Hard. He was in the field. There's no denying it. He goes on, verse 27, he's, he's coming back. He hears everything that's going on. In verse 27, this servant, when he asks, answers about what's going on. Your brother has come. Now think about this. Your brother has come. Hear that. He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Listen to verse 28 because this was the picture that Jesus was trying to paint. He says, the older brother became angry. That's interesting. Even the servant said, your brother came home. Now, shouldn't he, and this is the picture Jesus is painting, shouldn't this older brother be excited that his family has come back together because the story has gone out abroad about his, his younger brother and his foolishness, and he's out sleeping with prostitutes, and he's lost it to the point where he's feeding the pigs, and he's, I mean, he's consorting with pigs. He's humiliated our family, and now he's come back with, with his hat in his hand, with his head between his legs, basically, and he's like, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, and, and he's not elated. He's not excited. He's angry. He's actually angry. Goes on in, in this, in, uh, further on in the scripture, but before we get to that, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Why? Why was he so angry? Why did he refuse to go in? He would not go into the feast when he he knew it was happening. And we're going to get to that in a second. But here's what happens. The father comes out to his older brother, to this older brother, and he pleads with him. This is another thing you'll never see a first century patriarch do. He wouldn't come out and plead with this son. So two things you're never going to see. One, you're never going to see a proper first century father patriarch run to his sinful, disrespectful, irreligious son. But he did that. And two, you're never going to see him run out and plead with an arrogant, self-righteous, disrespectful, religious son. He wouldn't do it. He would not do it. He would make his son come in. That's what he would have done. But he didn't do that. Both 
times you see the father went out to his sons. And that's going to come into play in just a second. So listen to the elder brother. It's what he says. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, not even father. At least the first son, when he came back, said in his prepared speech, father, I have. Right? He doesn't even acknowledge that he's his father. And that's on purpose that you see this in the passage. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I would celebrate with my friends. This is how he perceived his father. This is how this elder brother saw his father, that he was a slave driver. I never disobeyed your orders. He saw him as an army sergeant, right? I never disobeyed your orders as if he was an army drill sergeant. Verse 30 says, but when this son of yours, he wouldn't even admit that he was his brother. He wouldn't even acknowledge that he had any relationship to this young son. He saw him with disdain. He, he hated him. He despised him for the embarrassment that he had caused his family. He never cared about this brother. It's obvious. He said, I've worked hard for you, and you don't appreciate my sacrifice. I deserve better than this son of yours. Notice, not my brother. All he cared about was his father's things. Isn't it interesting that even though the brothers were different on the outside or on the surface, underneath they were exactly the same. Neither one of them knew their father, and both of them only wanted what their father had, not a relationship with their father. He said to his father, you owe me. Look at what I've done for you. You owe me. Never one time did you give me what I deserve. That's what he's trying to say. Verse 31, listen to what the father says. This blows my mind. If I'm honest, I'm a little bit angry about this because I really don't like religious people. I'm just being honest. I really don't. Because the self-righteousness is worse, I believe, and I think Jesus is making this point in the story. Self-righteousness is worse than just knowing you're broken. It just is. Because at least in knowing you're broken, you can see who God is and you can open your heart to who he potentially is. Maybe you want to come back as a servant and try to pay him back. But if, if you hang around him long enough, you'll find out that was never his intention. That was not his heart. And everything he has has always been yours. You don't have to do anything to earn it from your father because he loves you that much. But listen to what this father says to this elder brother. My son. And that blows my mind. And this is interesting because nobody got more angry with religious people ever than Jesus did. Nobody. Go back and look. Just do a study. Go casually through the Bible and look at what he says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Sadducees. Go back and see what he says to them. It's never good. Never. He said, you pit of vipers. Think about that in context. You pit full of venomous snakes. He's saying this to the pastor, okay? You, the pastor comes and wants to challenge him because he doesn't like the way Jesus is doing things. And he wants to, and Jesus says, you pit of vipers. And he says, you're, you're, like, you're like this death inside of a grave that stinks and is horrid and is wretched, but you've covered it up with beautiful whitewashed stones and landscaping so nobody knows who you really are on the inside. And this is the point that Jesus was making about religious people. You think you're better. 
you think you deserve. You think God owes you. And so you come to him with that mindset. Look at what I've done. You owe me something. And they're full of anger and they're full of bitterness. And rightfully so, because they don't see their father accurately either. And this father's heart comes and begs of him. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me. Always. And everything I have is yours. The father has always lavished his love and his kindness and his heart on his sons. Always. The the first son, the younger brother, he even gave him his inheritance. I love it when people go off and party their brains out and act like there's no God. And every breath they take is a breath that God has given. The fact that there is oxygen, there's gravity on the earth, that every skill set and every ability, every charm they have, however good looking they are, whatever possible good thing in their life has only come down from the Father of lights in the first place. And they use the very creative part of them, who God made them to be, to disdain and take away any glory from God and take it all upon themselves. And this, this young son or this older son is doing the same thing. Here's what's interesting. Though this son had been in proximity to his father the entire time, he never took the time to actually get to know who he really was. He only had a perception, a narrative. You see this in our culture right now. People get stuck in a narrative because they don't want to hear anything that challenges the way they think. And that's, that's whether you're a conservative, whether you're a Republican, or whether you're a Democrat. I don't care. I could care less about all that stuff because it's going to pass away just like everything else. But the love of God, a truly changed heart, is the only thing that's going to make a difference in this world. Otherwise, everything has a political aim in mind. Beware the person who says, I have no agenda in this issue. I have an agenda this morning. I want you to know that. I'm clear about my agenda. My agenda is to help you understand where you are in relation to your father and how good and kind your father is and how he longs to draw you into a real relationship with him, not based on the things he's given you, or the things you think you deserve, but a real relationship with the Father. Listen to what he says, everything I have is yours. I have never withheld any good thing from you. It's always been available, but not because you're worthy, or because you're good, or because you work so hard, but because I love you, and I want you with me. It's not based on your merits, not based on anything you've done. It's based on the Father's love for you. The Bible says, we love God because he first loved us. Now, here's what's interesting. He gets to this part of the story. The son is outside. He's pleading with him to come in. And then the story abruptly ends. And that has a lot to say about what Jesus was trying to bring out. It's striking, actually. Why would he end the story this way? Why would it just stop? We never know. We don't know whether in the story, the son, the older brother, we don't know whether he ever actually went in. We don't know if he ever saw the father accurately. We do know the younger son, the the guy who slept with prostitutes and hung out with pigs, we know him. We know what happened to him. He went into the feast. You know, it's interesting in the story, it says that he invited him in and there was dancing. I know that violates some of you, you know, Southern Baptists, if that's your background, because, you know, you you don't believe in sex because sometimes dancing breaks out. You know, that's how conservative some people are actually, right? Listen to this. He said he heard what was going in in the celebration of the party. Now, how hard must you be dancing for the older brother to hear it in the field? 
this younger brother was blown away by the extravagance of the father, and it melted his heart. And it took away the mindset that I could ever repay him or that I ever should. And all he saw was his great love for him. That's all he saw. And that was the intention of the father. So this was meant, this story, I believe he stops it before the older brother comes in to the feast or doesn't, that we don't know. I believe he, he stops it on purpose because I believe this parable was an attempt to get us to contrast and compare the two brothers, to look at the difference between the two. The younger brother who was lost and a known sinner who had squandered his wealth, had slept with prostitutes, hung out with pigs, gets to come into the feast. But the elder brother who had never left, who had worked so hard for his father, who had never taken anything from the father, who was righteous, maybe even self-righteous, doesn't come into the feast. The lover of prostitutes is saved And the man of moral rectitude is lost. And that violates everything we think we know about how God works and how we're supposed to approach him. Most of us think God wants good people, but Jesus shows us that God wants new people. We like to think that the good are saved and the bad are lost. Jesus helps us see that they were both lost. One of them was good and one of them was bad, but they were both lost. They looked different on the outside, but were the same on the inside. Neither one of them knew their father. We think that the way to be saved is to repent of your sins. And Jesus shows us that you also have to repent of the motivation behind why you ever did anything good in the first place. And see, that's the picture where Jesus went after the Pharisees. He said, on the outside, you look amazing because you do good. You pray, you pray more than, remember Paul said this, I'm, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I know what that means. I pray more than you all. Everything that was, I sacrifice when it's necessary. I tithe everything, including table salt, for lack of a better term. Right? I, I do it perfectly. And yet on the inside, he was wicked and ended up killing the people that the father loved, killing younger brothers. That was Paul as an elder brother. But the gospel is neither morality or immorality. It's nothing like that. It's neither religion nor irreligion, nor is it anything in the middle. It's something else entirely. It is God making us new, not us doing anything. We were dead, now we're alive. We were lost, now we're found. We know Jesus wants us to contrast these two brothers. We see that. But there's something else. I believe he leaves the story unresolved for another reason. To see ourselves in the story. To see what we, that we need something that's missing in our lives. Something that isn't there in the story. He wants us to long for something. He wants us to come home, to know the Father, to receive the Father, and what the Father wants to pour out into our lives. So here's the question as I get close to wrapping up. How do we come home? How do we, like the younger brother, come home? How do we, like the elder brother, should have come home? Jesus said we need three things, basically. First, we need the initiating love of a father. What do I mean by that? That the father in this story goes out to both of the sons. To the younger son, he comes and he kisses him and draws him into the feast. For the elder brother, he comes out to him and he pleads with him because he's so angry. He pleads with him to come into the feast. You'll never seek God unless God has sought you first. We love God, not because we're good at it, but because God loved us first. And that revelation of who he is draws that love out of us. We not only 
have to repent of our sins, but we have to repent for the reasons we did anything right in the first place. We have to repent, not just for our sins, but our self-righteousness. That somehow anything I have done has any merit with the Father. Repent of your sins and of your righteousness, Jesus said. Listen, this is so very important. Only then will you know that you have transferred your trust from yourself, from your misguided ability to save yourself in your own self-righteousness to Jesus the only one who can truly save you. Third thing that you need is you need to be moved by what it cost him. You need to be moved by what it cost the father. Remember, there were three parables, sheep that were lost. Someone in this parable goes out and he finds the sheep and he brings it home. The coin that was lost, someone goes out into the home and he finds it and brings it back to safety. But here's what's really interesting about this parable Jesus just tells. The son that was lost, no one goes out and rescues him. And this is part of the story that Jesus told and why he leaves it unresolved, why the picture of the elder brother is so vitally important because the picture is everybody understood what was going on. That culture, when they heard this story, they knew not only was the son so bad, the elder brother was so bad because he was so good, right? but also because he cared less about his younger brother. See, there was something interesting that happened in that culture that the elder brother got two-thirds of the inheritance when the, and the other brothers, and, and not even daughters, but other brothers got the rest. Why? Why did that happen? Because he was the heir apparent. He was becoming the father, or supposed to be. Eventually, when his father died, he became the patriarch of the family. He was given that extra inheritance so that he could keep the family together. What he should have done and what everybody hearing this story realized, what he should have done is he should have come to the father and said, Father, our, your son, my brother, has gone out and he's, he's given his life to foolishness and he is, it's in ruins and I want to go and I rescue, I want to go and I want to rescue him. I want to take all the wealth that belongs to me because ultimately the fatted calf that he kills, that the father kills for his son, Really, that belonged to the elder son. Why? Because he knew that was going to be the inheritance, which is why he was so angry about the fattened calf, because it was costing him his inheritance. And what this elder brother should have done, would have, should, should have said, not only would I give away a fatted calf, but I would take everything that is left to me in this estate, and I will pay it all to go and rescue this younger brother of mine. That's what he should have done, and that's the picture Jesus was painting of himself in the story. This is what was coming. He should have said, I'm going to go and because his life is in ruins. I'm going to rescue him. I'll spend my inheritance to bring him home, even if it costs me everything. This important. It's important to realize that this elder brother was a contrast to Jesus, and you're going to see that coming up. We, as the collective human race, need a true elder brother. And this is why the story is so powerful. Because we, they heard this story. Everybody heard this story and they're like, that's what should be happening and it's why it's such a terrible contrast. But there is one who obeyed the Father completely. There is one who earned everything, the robe, the ring. But at the end of his life, he doesn't get a royal robe. He was stripped and his robe was divided by Roman soldiers. He doesn't get the fatted calf. He was given vinegar for his thirst. He doesn't get a ring of honor, but he gets a crown of thorns. He sacrificed everything for his younger brothers. The father turned his face from Jesus on the cross 
so he could turn his face towards you. This is what your elder brother has done. He offered a sinless life so we could never, never have to worry about our sins overtaking us again. Salvation is absolutely free to you. It's why it's called grace. It's unmerited favor. But it cost your elder brother everything. Jesus put a bad elder brother in this story so that we could long for a true one. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that deep down inside we know that we owe. He died for our sins and our self-righteousness so we could be brought home. And so as I close, are you moved by what your elder brother has done for you? To the degree that you see what he did, it will change your entire approach to God. You will come with humility. You'll come with brokenness, a contrite spirit, because you see what he's done. So let me ask you, do you know the Father? Do you really know him? Or have you brought your perceptions, your understandings from the past, your experiences, and you've defined God rather than allowing God's revelation of who he is to define himself? Do you just want, like the younger brother, what only he can give you? Do you want to try to control your life with the very gifts he's graciously bestowed upon you? To ignore the love the Father has for you until you find yourself in such despondence that you come back with a wrong picture of who your Father is. So broken that you are broken even in your perception of who your Father is. Or are you like the elder brother? You've always been with him. You've been in church. You pray. You read your Bible. You give to the poor. You sacrifice. And you think, because of that, you deserve his blessing. And when you don't get it, or it doesn't go the way you want it to go in your life, you are furious and you're angry because you see him withholding something that you deserve. Are you like the elder brother? Or are you like the elder brother in the fact that you see the lost, the younger brothers, the broken and the hurting, as beneath you and below you, that they brought this on themselves They made their bed, now let them lie in it. They are altogether undeserving of any good thing. You're completely bitter and self-righteous, despising the very Father who loves you and has done everything for you, that everything he has has been yours all along, but you never knew him. Do you know the Father? Would you like to really know him? Jesus said this, follow me. He didn't say pray a prayer. He didn't say go to church. He didn't even say read your Bible. Those are wonderful things. Do them. But it's not what he said. He said come and follow me. His expectation is that you would come along as you spent time with Jesus and his other followers, that you would begin to learn something about who God really was. And also you would begin to learn something about your own heart. And that was the picture that he was that he was. Portraying. Listen to Matthew 11. This is in the Message Bible, a paraphrase. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. Follow me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
And this scripture, I think, captured my heart more than anything. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 17. It says, you say, this is him speaking to a church who had a misinterpretation of who they were and who God was. He said, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, I beg of you, is is what the original language says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Listen, if you don't know you need a Savior, you'll never look for one. Jesus has no problem pointing out your sin. He has no problem. Because until you see your need for a Savior, you're never going to ask for one. Until you see your need for someone to come and rescue you, you will never humble yourself to be rescued. You'll always stand in pride. This is what he says at the end. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Take on a new mind. Verse 20 says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is the feast Jesus is inviting us into in eternity. When it happens here, when we invite Jesus in, we say, Lord, forgive me of my sin, forgive me of my self-righteousness. He invites us in and we get a taste of the feast that awaits us in heaven. Something that's going to satisfy. This is what he said. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. If you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. This is the promise that he makes. This is the feast. The Father longs to have you there. Jesus has paid the price to get you there. But you cannot come your own way. You must see yourself accurately. You are worse than you thought, but God is better than you believed. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted in love than you ever dared hope. He's good. So my question to you is, will you follow him? So I just want to do something simple. Again, maybe you don't know. Jesus was very clear, and this is why I'm I'm not a big fan of of prayers. about. I'm going to give my life to Jesus in this prayer. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a tremendous moment for that. And if you're ready to make that prayer, pray this prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer that if you're ready, you pray that prayer with me. But I want to tell you something Jesus said. He said, count the cost. Don't do this ignorantly. Don't get so elated. Oh, I think I know who he is. Or I'm going to somehow manipulate my way. Or I'm going to say the prayer. And somehow the the words are magic. And somehow there's an incantation in it that does all the work. No, that's not what's going to happen. And the story is proof positive that that's not how it works. Just because you're in church, just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger any more than coming to church makes you a believer, right? But a broken and a contrite heart, that's what Jesus said. I won't, I won't turn that away. So I want to take this moment. I want to ask you, really, really ask you, really take this moment seriously. Is your heart broken? Have you seen the cost, the price that was paid so that you could come in? So that God, in his great joy, because we always get a picture of God being angry and Jesus somehow appeasing the anger of the Father, right? And if you notice, that's not what the picture is is in this story. The the elder brother was never supposed to be appeasing God. As a matter of fact, in this story, the elder brother is angry with God. And Jesus is the elder brother. And the Father, you see the picture, he says, 
I will go there. I will lay everything down. He's literally painting a picture of himself in this story. And so there's no, there's no antagonism between the father and the son, the elder brother. There's no antagonism. Jesus is not, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for you. He is not up there because religion will tell you that Jesus is up there. Please, Father, don't strike them. The, don't smite them. Please, Father, look, look at what I, I, please, Father. That's the picture we get in our head, and that's the picture that religion has painted for 1,000 or 2,000 years. But it's not at all. The Father's heart was always, the Bible says, before the foundations of time, before you were ever in existence at all, the Bible says that the lamb, that elder brother, the lamb, was slain before the foundations of time. The agreement was, the heart of the Father says, I'm going to make a people. They are going to rebel against me, and they're going to misunderstand me. The enemy's going to come and mislabel me. He's going to say, I'm not good, I'm not kind. He's going to take the circumstance of a broken world that these people have brought upon themselves, and he's going to blame the Heavenly Father for the brokenness that's in their life. That's what's going to happen. And this whole process, this beautiful plan from heaven is that there's going to come a moment when the Son is going to lay down all the glory in heaven and come to earth, live a perfect sinless life, and he's going to go on to a cross, and he's going to lay his life down. The Bible says nobody could take his life. He gave it willingly. He laid it down. Why? Because there was something massive in the way of you and your Father, and that was your sin. And more importantly, your self-righteousness and your self-sufficiency. And this morning, if you can see it, you are desperately in need of a Savior. And I, wanna, I want to do what the Bible says. I want to caution you. I want to beg of you. I want to entreat you. Make this decision. Decide this morning to lay your life down before the Heavenly Father and take up the beautiful life that He has in store for you. Whatever you could have done with your life, no matter how good, no matter how gifted, will never be as good as what God has planned for you. It will be empty without him because there is a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fill. So I want to pray a prayer. And again, if you're ready, pray this prayer with me or at least a prayer like this. And if you're not ready, follow Jesus. Count the cost. Let him show you who he is. But don't delay. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not. The Bible says this life is like a mist, and then it's gone. Don't delay. If you're ready, you can pray this prayer with me. If you would, bow your heads. Father, I'm sorry for my sins, for all the things that I've done wrong. And I'm also sorry for my self-righteousness, for thinking I was okay when I knew I was not. I place my trust in you to save me. Thank you that on the cross, you paid a debt that you did not owe because I owed a debt I could never pay. And Lord, I give my life to you. I choose to follow you, to learn of you, to discover who you really are, to learn of your goodness. Lord, I want to forget who I thought you were. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have forgiven me. Lord, you have paid every price. You've taken all the sin away through what you did on the cross and all that is left is for me to place my trust in you and take it out of my own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and place it in you. So Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness. Show me who you really are. In your name I pray. Amen.
If you need prayer this morning, man, we would love to pray with you. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to pray with you and, and help confirm that in your own heart, help you know what the next steps are for following Jesus now that you have prayed that prayer, especially if you're online. Um, shoot us an email. Let us know that you prayed that prayer. Let us know what we can do to pray for you. We're going to have our team, our ministry team up here at the front. We would love to pray with you. And if you don't need that, be kind. Allow prayer to happen up here so don't get too rowdy and crazy. But do have a wonderful week and walk in the goodness. If you're already there, walk in the goodness and the favor and the love of God because it's overwhelming. Amen? Thank you, guys.